Well, good morning. It's a great day to be in the house of the Lord this morning. I'm excited that you are here with us. I would invite you to turn to the book of Acts. We are returning there finally. And so uh, we took the summer off. If, you, if you're a guest with us here last September, uh, we started through the book of Acts. And uh, I think through May, we ended uh, chapter 7. Uh, and so uh, next week, Luke will pick up in chapter 8 this morning. Uh, and really, when it comes to like a recap, uh, when you think about me and Luke uh, having to recap seven chapters uh, in one Sunday, I mean, really just draw the straws of who, anyway. Uh, <clears throat> but anyway, it's my turn. And so anyway, this morning, we're going to just kind of recap, uh, refresh our, uh, our memory of where we uh, journeyed through the book of Acts and kind of our angle towards it. And as you're flipping Acts, just a couple things. Uh, this past week, Next Point began meeting. Uh, so we had our first official meeting, and so it went great. I'm excited about uh, the direction we're headed already. Uh, so we just ask that you continue to pray uh, for that team as, we, uh, as they get together and, and just are praying for the Lord's wisdom uh, and as they get ready to meet again uh, next month. And so uh, also this morning is our small group kickoff uh, Sunday, which is why we're having lunch. We, if you're a guest with us, we don't do lunch every Sunday. Uh, that's just, you, you came on a great day. And so uh, this is the week that we kind of really just launch our fall uh, semester, if you will, where we uh, get uh, back into small groups. And so if you're not a part of a small group, uh, today is the day. Uh, you can find, uh, find, maybe find one, get with me or Luke or Ryan or Daniel, Paul, one of us, we get you connected uh, with somebody. Anyway, Acts and the book of Acts. And so uh, my job this morning is, as I said, to uh, recap uh, the seven chapters that took us seven months uh, and one Sunday. And so uh, you'll be happy uh, about I, I, what I've done. I even showed it to Luke this morning. Is like I just literally broke down these chapters, these little highlights, so I don't, I don't dive down at all. So we're going to stay kind of up here the whole way. So I know as I walk through these seven chapters, you may say, Justin, you forgot about this, you forgot about this, and oh well, you get over it, you know it, so that's good enough. Uh, anyway, so as we walk through, as I said, this is where I'm not going to camp out anywhere really. Uh, we're just kind of walk through, bring us all back to speed. Or if you haven't been with us and you say, I want to visit again next week, we're all kind of on the same page when we get back into chapter eight. Anyway, uh, uh, this is kind of how we, as a staff, broke down the book of Acts. You see these arrows uh, on the bottom under the, the word Acts. And so really, in a nutshell, Acts can be summarized. And so really, I guess I could just do this graphic and get off the stage and we'll be good. Uh, but I got to earn my keep. And so anyway, uh, first of all, you see the arrow going up. So we understand that Acts begins with Jesus' ascent. Uh, chapter 2, we see... Uh, the Spirit's descent, and then after that, the church is going out doing the work uh, of the gospel, building uh, the, the church of Christ, if you will. So that's kind of where that comes from. But anyway, if you're taking notes, uh, chapter 1, when we begin, let's first of all, let's look at the, the up. In chapter 1, uh, what we first begin to understand is that we have to understand that the author of this is no, no, nobody else but uh, the man named Luke. Uh, Luke is uh, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke, we actually believe that, um, I say we believe this true, that uh, the Gospel of Luke and Acts was one work, 
uh, when Luke sat down, he, he wrote a, a letter to, we see this guy named Theophilus in chapter 1, verse 1 of Acts, which is the same guy he, referred, he addresses in the gospel of Luke. Uh, and so uh, we understand that this is Luke, uh, who we will really begin to see more as we get through the book of Acts and his, uh, him accompanying on missionary journeys and things like that. Uh, but what we see is this, there's a guy named Luke who's writing this to a guy named Theophilus. And uh, what we see is purpose. Actually, uh, I did this. I went ahead and so you have time to write it down. If you want to write it down, uh, it's all going to be. So when chapter two comes up, all of them be on there. We're not going to go through them one by one. But anyway, so we see the author is Luke. The purpose, that we get the purpose? If you were to read Luke chapter one, uh, verse three. Uh, and so it's going to come up on the screen. So this is the reason in which when Luke sat down to write this letter to his buddy Theophilus, so Justin, I remember this is review, and so if you've been with us, uh, this is review to you. If you haven't been with us, this is bringing us all on the same page. So, Theo- so Luke sits down to write this letter to a guy named Theophilus, and this is the reason why he write, wrote in verse 3 of, of Luke 1. It says, It seemed good also to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So we understand, and this is something we have to keep in our mind, uh, the intent of Luke writing this doesn't change as the story unfolds, right? And so what we understand about definitely when we go to the New Testament, that there was an intent that the writer had when he wrote this letter to his, his, who, who his readers would be, right? And for me and you, it can't mean anything different for me and you than it did for his original readers, like we can't take what the word, we can't take the word of God in its intent and change it to, hey, that's what it's, no, Luke's purpose in writing this letter so that upon reading it, the Theophilus would read it and go, I am certain about the things I've been taught. I'm certain that Christ did come, that he did die on a cross, that he did give place to him, that he did raise from the dead, that what we see in chapter one, that he did ascend to the Father, that, uh, that the Holy Spirit did come and the church began to be born, the certainty that we could have. So that was Luke's intent. As you walk through chapter 1, uh, verse 1 of, of Acts, it says, uh, the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day, verse 2 says, until the, until the day he was taking up after he had, he had given commands of the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So what we understand is ultimately we can look at it like this, that in the gospel of Luke, uh, Luke says, hey, that, that account was all the things that Jesus had begun to do, right? What I'm writing now is what Jesus ultimately continued to do. We, I, heard, uh, I read a guy this week that said, you know, that we, we call this the Acts of the Apostles, uh, but probably be more fitting to be called to call it the continued acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Uh, because here's what's interesting. When you read the book of Acts, not one character, not one name that you see at the beginning, that you see him all the way through. That the apostles, they come and they die. Somebody else raises up, somebody else dies. Somebody raises up, somebody else dies. You know, one name that starts at the beginning and goes to the end? His name's Jesus. It's literally the, the continual acts of Jesus as he, there. So, so we wrote it like this. Whenever Jesus was resurrected, there was a finished work, right? When the, when the gospel's end, whenever you're reading through the Bible, you get to the end of the gospel of John, there is a finished work, y'all. There's a finished work that Christ has purchased. Scripture says eternal redemption. Redemption is paid for. It is signs of delivered, done, 
There's a, continue, there's a finished work, but now there's the continual work. There's the unfinished work that we see, and that is what the book of Acts begins to lay out. Verse 1, chapter 8, we see that Jesus gives his, uh, his, his disciples or the apostles now their marching orders. And this is the breakdown of the book of Acts. As the more we study it, I hope that you will see the way that Acts is formulated is connected to Acts 1.8. All right, so follow with me. It says in Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When is that? Chapter 2. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. And then it says in Judea and Samaria, which Luke could talk about next week, a guy named Philip, which is chapter 8. And then to the end of the earth, which is the rest of the book of Acts. So here at the very beginning in Acts 1-8, we get the whole breakdown of the whole book. It's going to start when the Holy Spirit comes. They will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon them. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem where you are. And then from there, you'll go to Judea and Samaria. And what we'll see today is how they end up getting to Judea and Samaria. And then after that, you will go to the ends of the earth. That's their marching orders as you will receive you will uh, receive the power of the holy spirit when it has come upon you and when you're filled uh, with the spirit and then acts 1 9 to 11 jesus ascends and so there's our up right so what acts chapter 1 is we see the purpose we see who the writer is we see that this book is about the continued work of jesus and what he's going to do on the face of the earth uh, he, we see that he, he tells his apostles, I'm leaving, obviously, but I'm sending you. The Spirit is going to come upon you, and you're going to continue the work that I haven't finished yet. Right with me? All right, and then he goes up. His, his work's done. Chapter 2, we see down. We see in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that the Spirit comes down at Pentecost. And this is where I really want to just pause, but I'm not. We understand that Pentecost is... Was, was a festival that was uh, prescribed by the Father that each year that these pilgrim Jews would return back to Jerusalem uh, to observe Pentecost. Uh, matter of fact, some of them may have already been there for since Passover, if you will. They've been there for a lengthy amount of time. And so here's millions potentially of, of pilgrim Jews that have come to Jerusalem. And that was the day that God orchestrated for the Spirit of God to fall upon the apostles. And so we see God sovereignly working uh, these things. So we see that the Spirit comes down. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and comes upon them. And they began to speak uh, in, in the languages of the pilgrim Jews that had returned to Jerusalem that day, that each day, each pilgrim were able to hear the gospel in their own language. And the scripture says on that day that 3,000 were added to the body. So things are escalate quick in chapter 1, right? You have Jesus ascending. They get their marching orders. They just wait in Jerusalem because that's what Jesus told them to do. I'm sure what is very quick for us in one chapter seemed like a lifetime to them, right? right? So Jesus is up. Spirit hasn't come down yet. What's going on? Spirit comes down. They began to preach the gospel there at Pentecost to people in where? Jerusalem. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So they began to preach the gospel. Scripture says that 3,000 people respond that day. At the end of chapter 2, Peter, this is where Peter gives his first sermon following being filled by the Spirit. 3,000 get saved. And one thing that, uh, you know, as, I'm, as I was studying this, how many ever months ago, you kind of get bogged down in things. 
Uh, and you don't see everything, right? And so now perspective, like I can look back and look at the scripture. Uh, and Peter's sermon, right? So the last experience he had with Christ is what? He saw Christ ascending into heaven. And when Peter stands up to preach at Pentecost, he preaches about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father, right? Uh, and, I, and this morning I began to think like, how did, how did Peter know that? All he did is see him go up. Well, it's because Jesus had told him. Well, but number two here specific that the Old Testament told him that that's what would happen, right? We looked at Psalms this summer, and, and here even in uh, Peter's sermon, he, he quotes David when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit down at my right hand. There's that picture that the Old Testament, and even Psalms, is, is all pointing to Christ. And so, anyway, that was just a note there, how Scripture teaches Scripture there, that we, uh, we, 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 we can understand what God wants us to know because he has revealed himself to us. How did Peter know that Jesus was seated at the right hand of God, even though he had not been to heaven? Because scripture told him that's where he would be. So chapter two ends with, we see the first snapshot of the everyday life of the Christians. We see that in 2, 42 through 47. So we've made it through chapter one. Chapter two ends, 3,000 people have been added to the flock. The spirit comes, 3,000 people have been added. And now there's this community, everyday life that is being developed with the believers where they devoted themselves, what? To the apostles' teaching, the breaking bread, the fellowship, and the prayers. And each day the Lord is adding to their numbers. That was the everyday. And what we've seen, if you remember, in the book of Acts, that Luke will give us something. He'll, he'll dive into something very specific, like the Spirit came, and all of a sudden he'll zoom back out, right? And he'll give us this 30,000-foot view of this is what everyday life looked like for the church. And then when we get to chapter 3, what does he do? He dives back in to the, when uh, we see the first miracle performed at the hands of the apostles, right? Peter and John in chapter 3 are walking into the temple at the hour of prayer. There's a lame man there, asked for alms, and Peter says, I have no silver or gold to give you, but what I do give you, I have, I tell you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. We familiar with that story. So he gets up and walks. So chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, we said the first miracle performed at the hands of the apostles, which gives way to Peter's second sermon. And Scripture says this time that the number grew to 5,000. So just from chapter 1 to chapter 3 now, we have 5,000. That's, I think, that's mostly just men that they're counting there. We're not talking about women and, and, and children, if you will. So, so you know, over 5,000 people are now following this Jesus guy just in three chapters. And like we know, all good things will begin to have tension, and it's what we see in chapter 4. Chapter 4, the apostles are arrested for the first time. They were threatened, and then they were what? Released. And really chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, it's going to come up on the screen, really set the tone of what's happening now. What we see in really 4, 5, 6, 7 uh, is that there is attacks from the enemy. In chapter 4, we began to see it start from the, from the attack from the outside. If the enemy wants to stop, because now there's over 5,000 people following this Jesus, if the enemy wants to stop it, his first attack was what? The attack from the outside, to get the religious leaders to tell them to stop speaking about the name of Jesus. When we get to chapter 6, eventually we'll see that the, the attack went from the outside to the inside, that he tried to divide from within with a guy named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. Division among the body, hypocrisy within the body to be what disrupts this movement. But what we see in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, it says, So they called them, this is Peter and John, they called them 
the Sanhedrin called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Do not do that. We're going to slap you on the hand this time. Stop talking about Jesus. And their response is literally what sets the tone from here on out. Their response is, verse 18, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge yourself. Verse 20, we cannot, cannot speak, for, for, we, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That sets the tone. The apostles, what we see is that they're then released. They're, they're threatened and released. And we see at the end of chapter 4 is that the apostles return to the church to pray for God to keep for him to keep working, and for them to remain obedient. Chapter 5, we begin with the, the attack from within. Right? He, what the enemy has seen is that this, this attack from the outside is only going to fuel the flame of obedience and faith in God. When we get to chapter 5, now the enemy is, is sowing the seeds from within with lying and hypocrisy within the own body of Christ. And we see the purification of the church. Verses 12 through 42 of chapter 5, we see that the apostles get arrested again because of the works that they were doing among the people and that they were gaining in favor. And it's, it's, this is when we begin to see this really this tension or this, this, this idea that, that, the, that the apostles are growing in, in fame, if you will, of recognition. So therefore, the religious leaders, their frustration was growing. But in the middle, there were these group of people who, uh, chapter 5 says they esteemed them highly, but they wouldn't join them. So for the church there, I think that they began, there began to be this, really this black and white area, if you will. There wasn't a gray area, that there were people that were in the middle that said, there was one that said, I oppose this, and there was one that said, this is who we are. But the people in the middle were like, I know that these people are awesome, but in order for me to follow them, them, it may cost me a lot. So therefore, I'm going to esteem them highly, but I'm not going to join them. Right? We see this really as a black and whiteness of, of really seriousness of, of following this dude named Jesus. And so, chapter 5, the apostles get arrested a second time. This time they get beaten. Then they get released. And we get to chapter 6. I'm moving forward quickly. Y'all may get, we may get out early to go eat hot dogs and hamburgers. No promises, though. I'm just following this point by point. Chapter 6 begins, now that there's thousands upon thousands, 20,000 plus people potentially, that whenever there are people together, remember they've sold their possessions, uh, they, they, they're, they're this community living, that there's needs that arise among the people. And in chapter 6, we see that there are seven men that are chosen uh, to meet the needs specifically of these widows who have been really overlooked in whenever the, in whenever the goods were being distributed or proceeds were being distributed, if you will. And so they raise up uh, seven men. I want to, if you have your Bibles, I want to turn your attention uh, really to verse 5, uh, just really the first two men that we see. It says, and what they, and what they said had pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, right? We remember Stephen. That's, that's the dominant figure in Acts chapter 7. And who's the second guy? Philip. Uh, Philip will be your main guy in chapter 8, by the way. And so here's these seven men, two of them, the first two there, were really chosen to take care of the needs of the church. Uh, and then what we see is that they began to do even more than that. And that's what we see 
as that uh, at the right there in verse seven of chapter six, it says that the number of disciples had multiplied. You know, in chapter two, it was saying that the Lord added to their numbers daily. In chapter six, he's using the word multiplied. And I'm not really that smart, but I know that adding something and multiplying something, multiplying is like a greater. Anyway, you follow me? Like it's it's expedi- it's speeding up, even though the enemy's trying to destroy, even though the enemy's trying to disrupt what God's got going on. We're moving from addition to multiplication when it comes to the church of God moving and growing. Everybody with me? Okay. Chapter 6, beginning of verse 8, all the way to 753, we see Stephen, his ministry, right? Remember his ministry that evidently, so inside Jerusalem, there were these, what they were called, synagogues. Uh, so you, maybe you read through the Gospels and you see the word synagogue, like, how is that different than the temple, right? Like how, you know, the temple's where they go to worship, but what's the difference? A synagogue, a synagogue was uh, really these buildings, these places of worship that were set up inside the boundaries of Jerusalem for pilgrim Jews who were coming in for whatever reason, that they would have their own, if you will, their own church at a specific corner they could go to and worship with their people, right? So in one synagogue, there would be the, the synagogue of the freedman, like there would be the, uh, the uh, Simon of Cyrene, like there would be these specific uh, areas, these specific synagogues literally dedicated to a specific type of people. And so there were hundreds and hundreds of these synagogues within Jerusalem that people would go. And so the idea of a church on every corner is not new to Jones County. It was in Jerusalem there, that there were people that would go worship with their people. And so anyway, what Stephen was doing evidently is he was going from synagogue to synagogue and debating there saying, no, Jesus is, you've missed him, Jesus is the Messiah. So what they decided to do is raise up all the smarts uh, of all all those different areas and bring them in to debate Stephen. And scripture says that at the end of it, they could not withstand the wisdom in which Stephen spoke. Now, there's a chance that Saul of Tarsus was even there, who we'll get to know in chapter 7 and 8, and definitely the rest of the book, a guy named Paul, who was the most brilliant mind in the world at that time. He could even been at this debate with Stephen, and he couldn't even stand up to Stephen's wisdom. So we see Stephen's ministry in chapter 6. We see his, his arrest. He was uh, accused of blasphemy against Moses, the law, the temple, right? Uh, and then he was on trial, and then we see his defense. And chapter 7 ends with Stephen's death being stoned by the hands of the Jews and the introduction of a man named Saul. Then we kind of, when we ended in May, we kind of talked about chapter 8 for quite a second. I just want to read the first couple of verses so that it will really set up loot for next week. And so chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. So there's a persecution. They were all scattered through where? Judea and Samaria. Where do we begin at? Acts 1.8. And receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem. That's chapters 1 through 7. Where did they go after Stephen died? They specifically went to where? Judea and Samaria. So we see that persecution causes the church to scatter, and specifically in God's sovereignty, they go to those places, which next in the marching orders, Judea and Samaria. But I want to turn your attention to this, that Saul becomes an important figure. And if you want to look at this as a play or a drama, the curtains close to this act. 
When the curtain closes, Stephen actually, they were so mad at Stephen that they didn't even bury him. It says in chapter 8 that the devout people came and picked up Stephen and buried him according to the law that if you stone a man, you at least had to bury him. But they left him there. Saul is ravaging the church. The church is scattering in Judea, Samaria, and the curtain closes. Next week, when the curtain opens back up, we're going to meet the guy named Philip who's doing this work in the place called Samaria. Everybody with me? This is where, where we've been. This is where we're going to be next week. All right, Justin, what is any application for that for me this morning? I got five for you. I called them certainty in the power of the Spirit. Certainty in the power of the Spirit. Acts chapter 1 begins, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come Upon you, which is interesting because if you read the end of the Gospels, when Jesus comes to see his disciples after his resurrection, he, he actually says, Receive the Holy Spirit. And he says that he breathed the Spirit within them, that they received the Spirit, right? And then we see this in Acts chapter 2 that you'll receive the Spirit. But then we see in Acts chapter 3, Peter filled with the Spirit. Then we see in Acts chapter 4, them filled with the Spirit. Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 7 with Stephen being filled with the Spirit. I thought you were filled with the Spirit back here. You know, the problem is that we leak. We leak, right? We, we get we filled with the Spirit, but what we see over and over again is that every time as the disciples were walking or the apostles were walking through these things, that, 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 that Peter filled with the Spirit, or Stephen filled with the Spirit, gazed into heaven, that there's this filling that happens because the reality is, listen to me, in the world in which we live in, it is hard to be certain about some things. Am I with me? There are so many things that Justin Holford is not certain about, y'all. I'm not certain if it's going to rain at 2 o'clock this afternoon. I hope it doesn't. I'm not certain if I'm going to be alive tomorrow. There's so many things that I'm not certain about. Listen to me. This whole idea, the reason why Luke wrote this letter is so that we could be certain about something. You follow me? Everybody with me so far? And there, really in these seven chapters, eight chapters, really the rest of the book, but I'm summarizing really five things that these apostles were absolutely certain about. And this certainty literally changed the dynamic of anything that they faced. And I believe for me and you, if we could really grab a hold of these certainties, by the, I say by the power of the Spirit, because only by the Spirit can I remain certain of these things. Right, when I began to lean on my own flesh, whenever, <laughs> like imagine Peter and John before the Sanhedrin the first time. Y'all, right? All they're doing is going to the temple, heal a guy. That's awesome. They preach the gospel. 2,000 more get saved. And all of a sudden, now they're standing before the Supreme Court of the Jerusalem. Don't know if they're going to live or die. You think for a moment in their flesh, they'd go, well, I didn't think this, I would end up here. I've been doing the right things, and doing the right things produce good things. Right? I sowed the good seed, I'm going to reap the good fruit. You ever think for a moment in their flesh that it certainly maybe wasn't the most greatest thing? Well, what happened? They were filled by the Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. And maybe me and you need to unspiritualize for a moment and realize that sometimes our flesh is weak and we begin to doubt things. And our certainty, so what do we need to be filled? But we, there's a certainty that you and I can have in the power of the Spirit. Five for you. Number one, they were certain that Jesus was alive, 
seated, and soon to return. Look through the seven chapters. Only chapter six do you not see somebody say that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's the only time. They were confident that he was alive. They were confident that he was seated in power and authority. They were, they were confident that he was soon to return. Every time we hear them speak, they, they, they spoke about God sovereignly ruling the universe. Like even when Stephen was in the pit with stones coming, he was confident that God was sovereignly ruling the universe. We see it in, in Peter's sermons after Pentecost and through the Sanhedrin that, 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 that the Romans and the Jews, that they conspired against God and even with Pontius Pilate to, to crucify the Messiah, but it was according to God's predestined plan that Jesus would be there and be crucified. Like even in the evil schemes of man, that God is still sovereignly ruling things. Listen to me. He may have, Peter may not uh, may not maybe couldn't know how the gospel was going to get to point A to point B. He may not have could have understood how I'm going to eat the next day, but he was certain that Jesus was alive, seated, and soon to return. They were confident that when the Gospel of Matthew ended, that Jesus told them that all power has been given to me on heaven and earth. Man, I've been certain about many things, but they were certain that Jesus was alive, seated, and soon to return, y'all. Number two, they were certain that Jesus had called them to be witnesses to all nations. They not have been certain about the means and the method or how to go about and do it. But they were certain that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and in Matthew 28, that Jesus had called them to be witnesses of the nations. That they had a purpose to make much of Jesus, to preach the gospel. They may not have been certain how they were going to make money. They may not have been certain about how they were going to provide for their families. They may not have been certain about popularity or this, that, and the other, but they were sure that Jesus called them. And child of God, listen to me, you may not be certain about the rest of your career or where you're going to live, the house you're going to buy, or the family that you may have. But listen to me, you can be certain that he's called you to be witnesses to all nations. No matter what was going on, they knew their purpose was to be witnesses. They were committed to being obedient no matter how difficult or inconvenient it got. Number three, not only were they confident that Jesus was alive, seated, and soon to return, and he called them to be witnesses, they were confident that Jesus had called them to love one another. Right? And they were obedient to how they knew how to do that. And when we see these crazy things happen in 242, and at the end of, what, five? Uh, or into four, and what we see is that that was not something new that what they were doing. That was Old Testament law to, to take, care, take care of one another like that. But they were confident that when Jesus was leaving them in the Gospels, that he called them to love one another. They were certain in the power of the Spirit that they were called to love one another, be committed to one another in word and in deed. And you can see their commitment level because that's where they spent their time and their resources. I think the fourth thing that they were certain about is that Jesus would build his church. 
me and you, some 2,000 plus years later, we look at the book of Acts and say, you couldn't see this happening? You couldn't see God sovereignly work orchestrating all things? No, all he knew is that he walked to the temple and then he was in court. Like, don't forget, like, like try, try to go back into their picture going, all right, last time we did this, y'all, we ended up before the Sanhedrin. And they told us not to do this anymore or it's going to get bad. No, he said he was going to build his church. He said he was, and he said that, listen, he said the gates of hell is not going to prevail. So let them come at us. Let us, let them try to take our voice away. Let us, let them try to take our community away. Jesus said he was going to build his church. The any attack of the enemy would only fuel the flame and then increase their numbers and increase their effectiveness. How could they be confident in that? It's because it was the promise of, of Jesus to them that he would build his church. Fifthly, I'm going to wrap up with this, is they were certain that Jesus would always be with them no matter where they found themselves. How could they be certain of that? Because he promised that. Not only did he promise in the Great Commission that all power and authority has been given to me, but he ends that with the gospel sandwich that, and I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Have you ever seen the, Luke, Luke told me this like 12 years ago. Look at the Great Commission like this big sandwich, right? So we, we always concentrate on the meat of the sandwich, which, which is go make disciples of all nations. But what precedes that? All authority has been given to me. What's underneath that? I'm with you always to the end of the age. Like that in itself should empower us to, to be the witnesses he's called us to be. Not only, is he, not only is he the one who has all authority, but the one who has all authority is going to be with us always. He's promised us that. But they, they experienced it. When, whenever Peter was standing before Sanhedrin, he was filled with the Spirit. When Stephen was in the, in the pit being stoned, he, he gazed into heaven and he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He was certain, they were certain, they wouldn't be left as orphans. That Christ would be with them in the power of the Spirit, even in death. And child of God, this morning, I want you to know that these five certainties, I can't promise you certainties on a lot of things. I can't say you can be certain about if you Invest your money this way, your return's going to be this. Or if you do this a certain way, that it's going to turn out like this. I'm just a simple-minded, balding preacher. But I will tell you that if you believed in Jesus, there are certain things that you can be. I can guarantee you those things. I can guarantee you that Jesus is alive. And right now, he is seated on his throne. And Peter actually says in one of his sermons, as he's sitting there, that his father is making his enemies his footstool. That he is sovereignly ruling the universe. And child of God, I can also tell you that he is soon to return. That this kingdom that he inaugurated in his first coming, will be consummated soon. This kingdom that is merely only by faith 
will actually become our sight. That there is an expiration date. And I feel like, I feel like you talk about this. That's what we need. Like we need to be reminded that Christ is soon to return. If not, then, man, maybe you ask, is evil always going to prosper? Is the unrighteous always going to have the microphone? Are they always going to be controlling the narrative? My answer is no, because he's soon to return. The justice and mercy will rule and reign. You may be doubting, child of God, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? I can't be certain specifically. Maybe you're called to do this. Maybe you're be a teacher. Maybe you're maybe this, that, whatever. You can be certain that he's called you to be his witness. And whatever you're doing, or maybe, maybe you're even reminded, hey, in you doing what you do Monday through Friday, he has called you to be a witness there in the office, in the classroom, at the house, wherever you find yourself, I'm certain that whenever you believed in Jesus, he called you to be his witness there. And maybe for some of you, he's even calling you to go to Judea or Samaria or the ends of the earth. Our prayer as we started this gospel reach thing every week is that God would call some of our people out to go be missionaries X, Y, Z, or become a Hey, God's calling me to pastor. God's calling me to preach. Or God's calling me to do this. Like, that's our prayer. We don't want to just commit ourselves to God's truth. And we want to see us committing ourselves to God's truth and people falling in love with God's truth and us sending these people out to, to share the truth with people. Child of God, I can I can tell you certainty on your friends and people groups, but I am certain that he's called you to commit to his people. Not to be ISO, not to be 007 Christian. Not to be like the predator who can make yourself invisible. But he's called you to commit to his people. I can be certain, you can be certain that no matter what the enemy schemes, that Jesus will build his church. And he's calling us to be a part of that. And lastly, I can't give you certainty that you're not going to walk through hardships. I can't give you certainties that doctor's not going to call you and give you a bad diagnosis. I cannot give you certainty that you can work out, eat all the right things, do all the right things, abstain from all the bad things, and it's going to lengthen your days. I can't give you that certainty. It can make those days more enjoyable, I believe that. But I can give you certainty that he has promised to be with you no matter where you find yourself. And listen to me. Why is that in the power of the Spirit? Because these five realities that I just read, they do not change. But something happens in mind in your life where we get scattered from to and fro and we operate as if these five things are not true. Anybody with me? And we start operating in a way that we're not, we're not, 
We're not walking in the power of the Spirit. We're not being filled by the Spirit. We're not in God's Word. And life starts crashing in, and we feel like God's not, where you at, God? Like, what's going on? We, we start walking around like we have no hope. There's no reason and no purpose. Why? Because at some point, we stop being allowing, allowing the Spirit to walk with us and, and navigate this life for us and, and while walking by the Spirit. So what's the call this morning is to, for whatever is going on in life, whatever point how can I say this you stop walking in step with where the spirit was leading I'm asking you to return to that place did you know that Galatians 5 says to walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh now you may not There's a chance you won't. It says, it's a promise. If we walk by the Spirit, you will not, emphatic, you will not give in to the desires of the flesh. So what happens is at some point we would stop right here. So my simple invitation is to come confess that to the Lord. I'm not walking in step with you. I've I'm searching many other things for certainty and security and strength. And those things, Jesus equates those to like building our house on a sandy shore. You're going to wash away. The Psalms gives us a picture of those who put their trust in the Lord. They're like a tree that's being built or being planted by a river where his, his roots dig in deep and when the wind comes they're not scared when the drought comes it's not scared why because it is certain in these things if you don't know Jesus this is an invitation for you to believe in Jesus to trust in Jesus but if you do know Jesus but you're not living in these certainties this is an invitation to, to come back to the well with me This morning we have the awesome opportunity as the band comes back out to to lead us. We have the awesome opportunity to, as the body, to partake in the Lord's Supper together. And this is how kind of our mindset, I want, as we, and listen, you don't have to be a member of Crosspoint to partake in the Lord's Supper with us. Uh, Simply, the Lord's Supper is for those who have placed their faith in Jesus. And so my mindset, I want to lead us into this morning as we get ready to partake in the Lord's Supper is that we are reminding ourselves because of the broken body and the blood that was shed, you and I can live with the certainty that Jesus is alive and he's seated and he's going to return. It has called us to love one another that he's with us even to the ends of the age. That nothing that the enemy schemes will prosper. And we unite together around the table to proclaim that reality, that truth. So the way that we do it is 
I'm going to quit talking in a minute, I promise. And the deacons are going to come up front. They're going to have the, the elements in a little bowl. And as the band's singing, we're going to ask you to come forward and, and grab this little, it's, it's still, still COVID, COVID communion. Uh, it's COVID, so it's the little wrapper that sounds like Rice Krispies in here. Snap, crackle, popping. Uh, we'll ask you, do they even do that Rice Krispies anymore? Or is that just when I was a kid? I know the Rice Krispies still make that noise. Anyway, sorry. That's the first time my brains went somewhere else, Luke. I did really good today going through my points. Anyway, whenever the band's singing, the way that we do it is you're invited to come forward at your timing. Maybe you need to spend a second and just praying through, responding in your own heart and your own mind to, to the things that maybe the Holy Spirit shared with you this morning. Uh, but as the band's leading, uh, you have the opportunity to walk down front, grab one out of the bowl, and we ask you to take it back to your seat. Don't partake in it yet. Uh, we believe that's something that we do together, right? It's not just Christianity and everything in our culture tries to move to this individual experience where we are trying to claim back. No, it's, it's, it's a group. It's a body. And we together are partaking of the Lord's Supper together. Uh, and so anyway, I'm going to pray. Uh, maybe, maybe before you need to, you know, you need to talk to me or Luke. One, we'll be standing in the back. Maybe you need to pray through some things. But anyway, let's pray. After I say Amen, you're going to stand. The bands will start leading, and as you feel ready, you can move forward and get um, the cup and the wafer. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word and this truth. God, I thank you that. There are things that you have gifted us in your Holy Spirit that we can be certain about. So may we live in that certainty, even though things are challenging and crazy at times and <laughs> chaotic. There are things that don't change, and that's the things we talked about this morning. May that reality sink deep within our being, so much so that it changes the way that we operate changes the way we react, we respond. <clears throat> that by the power of your spirit, we can walk in faith and obedience. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.